And uh, I would invite you this morning to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and, and then we'll skip to verses 37 to 42. Our sermon this morning is uh, titled, What is Pentecost? And uh, as we turn to, as you turn to Acts, chapter 2, and think about Pentecost, uh, as I've been reading and rereading this chapter, I can't help, I just couldn't stop myself from thinking this week about what on earth God is doing at Pentecost. Uh, because at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, God does something that to normal Christians feels like a great triumph, but that to abnormal Christian pastors like me kind of feels like a huge mistake. Uh, at the end of Acts chapter 1, we learn that all the disciples of Jesus, including the 12, numbered about 120 people. Now remember, uh, it took Jesus about three, three and a half years of daily ministry to teach those 120 people how to be his disciples. Three years of intense, close counseling, teaching, shepherding, mediating. Three years of daily, constant correcting, forgiving, and helping from God himself. Jesus then takes that group of about 120 people who after three, three and a half years still aren't perfect, unlike all of us, uh, and then adds 3,000 to them in an afternoon. And not 3,000 people who all lived in the same area and had at least some cultural overlap. No, he takes 3,000 people from all over the known world with different languages, cultures, occupations, backgrounds, philosophies, and he joins them to his 120 disciples. Uh, to give you an idea, when everyone's here, and we're still, even this today, not everyone is here yet, we're about 120 people. Now add 3,000 this afternoon. Where do we worship? How do we get to know one another? How do we get to love one another? How do we get unity? How do we learn to repent and forgive one another starting right now? All 3,120 of us. It's hard not to look at this as a minister and think, Jesus, isn't this kind of a mistake? Uh, and it would be if it wasn't for Pentecost. Because here's what I've learned Pentecost is at its heart. Pentecost is the day when God empowers the unified worship and life of his diverse people. Pentecost is the day when God empowers the unified worship and life of his diverse people. Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit shows us that he can take 3,120-ish people all different cultures, different languages, different levels of spiritual maturity, emotional maturity, all of that, and make them truly one. And as a part of Jesus' church, this is important for us to understand because we're diverse. Not so much in language, but in culture, in maturity, in occupation, in philosophies. And just like the early church, Jesus is, praise him, adding to our number two. And we need to know that because of Pentecost, the same Spirit who did this amazing work of making these 3,120 people one 
is at work to make us one today. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to read Acts 2, 1 through 21. We're going to skip to verses 37 to 42. We're skipping Peter's sermon this morning uh, just because of time, but Lord willing, we'll come back to it maybe sometime next year. And then once we've read, we'll pray, and then we'll talk about our passage under these three points. Pentecost is the day when we celebrate life with God, with God. Uh, Clever, I know. Uh, The Holy Spirit's work at Pentecost, and then finally, God saves sinners into a new communal life. So let's read Acts 2, verses 1 through 21, and then again we'll skip to verse 37 to 42, and then we'll reflect this morning. Let's hear now God's word. Kids, this is a pretty cool story. Pay attention, because there's tongues of fire above people's heads, so I think you're going to like it. All right, let's listen. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were all sitting. And divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors to Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own languages the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And now skipping over to verse 37. Now when they heard this, which is the rest of his sermon, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers! What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's ask him to write it on our hearts. Father, we thank you for this word. Uh, which uh, tells us of your mighty acts of salvation for your people in the past and shows us also what we know you are doing for us today. Father, we know that your word is an encouragement. It is life. It is an encounter with you, but only if your spirit goes forth with it. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would go forth with your word. And that as he goes forth, we ask that you would, that he would um, give us ears to hear your word minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it, so we might with confidence live with one another, knowing that you live with us too. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Such a powerful story, isn't it? Okay, so the first thing I want to look at with you is the day when Jesus chose to do all of this, which verse 1 tells us is Pentecost. Pentecost is actually one of the main Old Testament celebrations that God commands Israel to celebrate at Mount Sinai. And this festival has two names. Most of the time, it's called the Feast of Weeks, because God tells Israel that they're supposed to celebrate it seven weeks and one day after they celebrate Passover. But seven weeks plus one day is 50 days. Summer's coming soon, kids. You won't have to know that off the top of your heads anymore in about a week, right? Uh, And that's what Pentecost means. Pentecost means 50 days. So if you see the Feast of Weeks or you see the name Pentecost, same festival. That's the name. More important is the meaning. Pentecost is about celebrating our life with God with God. And here's what I mean. 50 days after Passover, Israel would bring offerings from their harvest to the temple and offer them as what the Bible would call a wave offering to the Lord, which means they'd wave them in front of the altar. And I know that might seem strange, but think about what you and I do uh, when we see someone from far off, someone we love. Think about what we do if they've given us, say, a big gift. Don't we usually wave at them and say, hey, thank you so much. As we're walking up to them, right? Big arms, big gestures, lots of joy, right? Or how I greet, you know, you guys most of the time on Sundays. Hey, welcome to church. Don't drive away. Come in, right? Big arms. It's a wave. That's a wave offering. It's taking Jesus' gifts. It's standing in front of him, and it's celebrating the blessing of living with Jesus. Jesus, thank you for this food and for the rain and for the sunshine that you brought, which has fed us so abundantly so that we could live with you and they're gathered before God to do it. But that's not all they do on Pentecost. There'd also be sacrifices of thanksgiving for answered prayer, for Jesus' protection. There'd be sacrifices again for sin to assure God's people that he still forgives them and he still welcomes them, that he still loves them. There'd even be at God's command, at least one sermon preached so that God could, God's people could reflect on God's word and hear from him about how they are to live together and how he lives with them. God's people speak, God speaks, 
They're gathered together to celebrate. You see, Pentecost is a day of celebrating our life with God, with God himself. It's about celebrating the fact that God made us his people, that he lives with us, that he provides for us, that he loves us and forgives us and teaches us, and God joins in that celebration. I'm so glad you're my people. Jesus, we're so glad you're our God. And so it shouldn't surprise us then that after completing the greatest Passover ever, by dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus then connects the sending of his Holy Spirit to this day that's devoted to celebrating life with God, with God. The day tells us what God's plan is for the church. His plan is to live with us, to provide for us, to forgive us, to sanctify us, to unite us as his people in celebration and in the assurance of life with him forever. So from there, let's look specifically at what happens when God sends his Holy Spirit on these 120 disciples who were gathered together to celebrate their life with God, with Jesus, who, like we talked about last Sunday, had just ascended into heaven and had started his redemptive reign. So here is an example of Christ bringing his kingdom. His kingdom is coming. We're told in verses 2 through 4, I'm going to read it again because it's so cool. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues like fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Kids, imagine being in this group. Adults too. Everyone play along. Uh, I'm assuming they're praying and having a worship service, kind of like this one, but they might have just been enjoying fellowship with one another like we do after church. And then suddenly, inside the building, it sounds like a tornado. But it's just the sound. Right? The text doesn't say there was a huge wind, just the sound of a huge wind. And then, along with that sound, you turn to look at the person next to you, and you see above the head or maybe on the shoulder of the person next to you, something that looks like a flaming tongue of fire above them. And then you kind of peek your head up and you see that there's a flaming tongue of fire above your head. And then suddenly you find that you're able to speak about Jesus and recite the Bible from memory in a language you didn't know three seconds ago. Why would you, with that experience, so, you know what we need to do? We need to go outside and start preaching about Jesus. Why would you not do a Jonah and go, this is crazy. I'm at, there's fire above. I'm out of here. <laughs> well, I assume this was because this was largely a group of Jews and some Gentile converts who knew their Bibles. So in the books of Ezekiel and Job, when God is going to speak a restoring, redemptive word, a word that brings life from death. He speaks out of a whirlwind. Which, by, by the way, I think shows that God, God's word enters redemptively into our experiences of judgment and death and chaos. I think that's a powerful symbol. In a swirling life of suffering and brokenness, God's word of reconstruction and recreation comes. 
You can see that in Ezekiel 1, verse 4. You can see it in Job 38, verse 1. In Ezekiel, God arrives in a whirlwind as the king. And out of that whirlwind, he speaks about his redemptive plan for Israel and for their captors, Babylon, and how he's going to work in history to deal with Israel's sins and with Babylon's sins and how amazingly he's going to deal with everyone's sins in such a way that Babylon will join Israel as brothers and sisters, reconciled from enemies to family. And in Job, God speaks out of the whirlwind to a Christian who is frustrated with God's plans, is frustrated with his providence, who's scared and angry and alone and sad. And from within the whirlwind that pictures Job's own emotional and relational life, God brings comfort and peace and repentance and forgiveness. And it sets Job up for a new life of blessing with God that ends the book. See, it's hard for me not to believe that these 120 disciples heard and saw these things that eventually, after they got over their initial shock, they wouldn't have thought about these passages, along with Jesus' promise to send them the Holy Spirit. And not just these passages. Isaiah, I think, would have been in their mind too. So in Isaiah, God symbolically prepares Isaiah to preach by touching a flaming hot coal to his mouth. And the picture there is of God purifying Isaiah's speech so that he can talk for God, so he can speak God's words. And by the way, what is Isaiah going to preach about? He's going to preach about how God, through the judgment of his servant, is going to save his people and bring the world in to his people and create this community of Jews and Gentiles united by God's own love and acts of redemption. That's where the tongues of fire come in. The fire represents the heat of the coals in Isaiah, and the tongues represent speech. So the Greek word for tongue means both tongue, this thing, and languages. So Jesus has a sense of humor. It's a visual pun. How many of you knew God was joking a little bit on Pentecost? Like, hey, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a visual pun to show them my Holy Spirit. He puts a flaming tongue above their heads to symbolize this gift he's going to give them for speaking these other languages while they are gathered in Jerusalem. And so because the disciples understood this, they went outside and they started to preach. And given the size and diversity of the crowd, they most likely preached either within or just outside the temple. And there we read this amazing description in verses 7 through 11 of all these people from all these different regions who heard these you know, roughly 120 disciples preaching about Jesus in their native languages. I think it's interesting to ask how many languages were spoken there that day. It's not clear. There's at least 12, but it's probably a lot more than that, especially if you have 120 preachers. Maybe it was 120 languages. Why not? Why not? But however many there were, Given the context of the day and the biblical meaning of how the Holy Spirit appeared, it's clear that the disciples were preaching about Jesus. And specifically, they were preaching how Jesus is the one who brings forgiveness and life and restoration to God's people, to Jews and Gentiles, and makes them one. They were preaching about the kingdom of God. And then that makes me wonder a little bit about those who, in verse 13, 
mocked what they heard and said, they're filled with new wine. And by the way, new wine is just wine. It, it is wine that has been fully fermented, but it hasn't yet been aged. In other words, it's real cheap. It's the inexpensive stuff. It's two buck chuck. So what the guys are saying is, these are just a bunch of cheap drunks drunk on cheap wine. And I, I used to... Uh, to, to think that they said this just because it would have been such a you know cacophony of languages, it would have been just a, a bunch of nonsense, all these languages. But now I realize these mockers would have heard preaching in their language too. It wasn't not all nonsense to them. They would have heard. And I wonder if they mocked not just because of the noise, but because of what they were hearing. Jesus is the Christ who died to make Greeks and Romans and Jews and Americans and Mexicans and Chinese and black and white and red and yellow and all the colors of the rainbow, one in his church. You're drunk. That's crazy. How is that possible? If you look at the world today, you think, how is that possible? And then Peter gets up. And he says one of my favorite lines in the Bible. We're not drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. It's too early. This is when drunks sleep it off. It's not when they're getting drunk. No, what you're seeing is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And in Jesus' day, Joel was sometimes called the book of repentance. Because there in Joel, God talks in this really sustained way about why and how to repent. And this word from Joel 2 that Peter quotes verbatim is a promise that the day of the Lord is coming and that on that day, God is going to restore his people. He's going to bring repentance and reconciliation and unity and holiness to them and to the world as they repent. And so you can see from all of this that this is what the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost is all about. It's about Jesus bringing life. It's about bringing restoration, restoring human community by bringing in a global, diverse group of sinners who have been saved by Jesus into the one family of God on earth. It's about creating a people who get to celebrate life with God in Christ with God, who now indwells his people through the Holy Spirit, who empowers them to live in this unified life of worship together. And that brings us then to our final point, which is God saves sinners into a new community. Now, don't worry, this point won't be long. Uh, after Peter preaches, the crowd asks them what they need to do, and Peter tells them in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they do. And so we read in verse 41, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, that number, 3,000, it's amazing, right? It's encouraging. But again, what happened here today, I would celebrate, I'd rejoice, and I'd probably go home and cry a little bit for how tired I was going to be, and then the elders and I would have a discussion about how many associate pastors we're hiring tomorrow. <laughs> but it wouldn't be impossible because Pentecost happened. If you ask yourself, like, why did the disciples not have that same response? 
Why didn't they have a different response? Why, did, why didn't they run away? Why, why did they welcome them with open arms? It's because they knew that these 3,000 people also had the Holy Spirit who was promised to bring unity and joyful life with God. Doesn't Peter say, repent and be baptized every one of you and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers devotion to the preaching of the word which follows. It's the Holy Spirit who empowered reconciled fellowship in this new body of believers. It's the Holy Spirit who empowered unity in the worship of God. That's what verse 42 is all about. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers because the Spirit was in them to make them one. And as Acts goes on, it's the Holy Spirit who empowered open discussion and problem-solving when the Gentile widows weren't getting their fair share of the diaconate. It's the Holy Spirit who empowered the different Christian congregations to share their resources with one another, to pray for one another, and to send helpers to one another, even on dangerous journeys by road and by boat. It's the Holy Spirit who empowered confession and forgiveness and reconciliation, even among the apostles. We can forget that Mark and Peter didn't get along for a season. It was the Holy Spirit who brought them back together years later. And just as a side note, as an encouragement to us, there are a couple of times when the Holy Spirit is said to come upon people after these events of Pentecost and Acts. Each time, it's when a group of people who worship God are introduced to him as the God who appeared in Jesus. So they have met God through John the Baptist ministry or through other Old Testament evangelists, but not in Jesus. And then they meet Jesus, and it says the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And when that happens, no one speaks in languages ever again. Instead, what happens is these folk embrace their fellow Christians with love and sacrifice and joy as they live together with God, which is a far greater miracle. Speaking a language is cool. Loving somebody who hurts you is hard. The Holy Spirit empowers the life of the church. And to conclude, this is why God's mission of gathering people into the church isn't crazy. This is how the church works. It's how we work here at Grace. We exist as a diverse people, as a community of diverse people, because God has given us the Holy Spirit. And as a people, the Holy Spirit is right now working out God's redemptive work in our lives so that we can live together with God, celebrating with God, enjoying His gifts to us together with Him, especially enjoying His gifts of one another to each other, of getting to rejoice in His gifts of Him adding to our number those who are being saved. My friends, if you're wondering, how is it possible that this church can work when you know there's people in it who frustrate you, annoy you, maybe there's a minister who bores you, how is this going to work? Because the Holy Spirit is here. Because He is at work in us to bring reconciliation, to bring life, to bring joy, to bring unity in worship and in fellowship, and in prayer. Be confident in that. 
as you interact with one another, remember, they have the Holy Spirit too. The Holy Spirit is not dead in them. He's alive. Relate to one another as those who know that they have the Spirit. So let's make giving thanks for Pentecost then a daily thing because it shows us that we have uh, the gift of life with God here at Grace because the Holy Spirit is empowering it in us. And let's live with one another as though it's true because it is. The Spirit is with us all as his people. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for doing what only you can do, uh, which is taking such a diverse group of people and making them one by empowering our love and unity through your own Spirit. Uh, Father, please help us to live as those who have the Spirit because we know your Word tells us that as your people we do. Help us to live together in repentance and forgiveness and in love and in unity so that the world can taste and see in us the goodness and presence of Christ. And so we pray, repent and believe and join us in this wonderful kingdom that you are giving us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.